Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how, and more importantly, why they wrote it. Except, in the instance, they didn't, in fact, write it. Uh, I mentioned this obvious statement because our guest this week is Rory Scovel, who you might know from his multiple appearances on Conan, roles in movies like I Feel Pretty, the Apple TV Plus series Physical, his Comedy Central show Robbie, which I personally love and recommend, and his Netflix special Rory Scovel tries stand-up for the first time. For years, Rory has been one of my favorite comedians to see live because he's just so clearly in the moment. You can never tell if his material is material at all or just something he's just making up on the spot. I'm aware that on its own, this doesn't sound that great, uh, or just like it sounds like what all comedians do, but understand for the improv-trained Rory, this means to be uncommonly connected to the audience. When it works, it feels like he's, he's channeling all of our unconscious brains to find exactly what we want to laugh at at that given moment. In 2018, Rory wanted to see what would happen if he fully gave himself to this instinct and booked a run of six shows in Atlanta in which he would perform no pre-planned material. The result is Live Without Fear. It's part special, part documentary that Rory released on his YouTube channel earlier this year. This clip that you're about to hear came on the Wednesday night of that week. So here is Rory Scovel. Tried to read some articles today to see if that would stimulate any ideas for the show. And uh, instead, I just jerked off for what I'm pretty sure is the 10th time this week. (laughs) You ever get to that point where you just jerk off so much, you're like, do I even like this? You ever jerk off so much that you Google porn addiction just to see where you stand? (laughs) Google porn addiction, go to it like, well, I mean, (laughs) how many times are you masturbating? It's like, I don't have to answer your questions. (laughs) Tell me someone else who's answered the questions and let me see if I relate to them. Doesn't need to be about me right now. And if we could hurry up, that'd be great, because I'm trying to watch this fucking gangbang thing. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, no, no, gangbang. You ever put on a gangbang porn clip just so you can watch it going, leave her alone? <laughs> Good God. 
She wants them to do that. Fuck! I used to always think that if things didn't work out for me in life and I was like heading down like just like just no money, no job, thought everything was falling apart. For some reason I always thought I could just get into porn. Like as a kid I thought you could just decide to do that. Like I thought you just go, hey, I, everything else didn't work out. I'm ready to fuck on camera. I'm now ready to fuck on camera and truly expose the last shred of vulnerability that could ever exist for me. I've watched, I've just put on gay porn just to, just to soak it in. Just to soak it in. Literally turned it on and I was like, how do I feel about this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Does anyone, can anyone relate to that? <laughs> Guys, I'm literally making the whole fucking show up right now. Answer the questions! I have nothing! Look what I'm talking about! I don't even know how we got to this point. I don't know. I don't know. I should have gone down the pot road. And for some reason, I went down exposing what I've seen in pornography. And it hurts a little, but here we are. Don't think about this question. Just off the top of your head. Just throw it out there. And truly just dig into this. Top of your head. How big do you think your dick is when it's not hard? Off the top of your head. Off the top of your head. <laughs> Five! That crushes me, dude. My, oh God. I would kill to be five. Fuck, dude, when you're hard, what is it, like a thousand? Shit, five soft, shut up, dude! So I am here with Rory Scoble. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, so when talking about this, I want to back up a little bit. So when you're doing press for your second special, Rory Scoble tries stand-up for the first time, um, you... <laughs> You would talk sometimes like you that you were like a little disappointed with your first special, the Charleston special, um, and how loose it was and how you wanted to have your material more polished, more ready, just like a more finished product. So yeah. after doing Rory Scoville, try stand up for the first time where that was your approach, filming that, putting that out, where were you with your stand up? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and also just to, to let people know, I do, um, I think maybe it's because when it's it's your product, you just have this other, you know, maybe harder critique. <laughs> sure. um, but I, I remember going into that Charleston one, uh, like going into recording your first album or recording your first special. You know, when you're not a musician, it it's all going to happen mm. in real time in this space. And either you get it or you don't. There's really no uh, do-overs. 
And I was just too immature uh, as to what the process needed to be to get to a space where that product could be as good as it could be. Mm. And I, I think when I say immature, I mean, just a level of arrogance of, well, I'm very funny and this will, this will work. And I know these bits and I will, yeah. I, I, I will make it all work. I think I really have a great sense of pride and true joy for how my Netflix special um, uh, turned out mainly because I know for a fact I matured from being someone who was arrogant and thought I could just wing mm. it to someone who really worked very hard at making sure that I had 50 to 60 minutes of jokes that were going to work. They were tried, you know, tried and true and they, they had been tested and, and they were, they were ready to be put out there. So I love all that material. I love how we shot it. I love that Jack White and Third Man Records got behind it to help us finance it and to make it and and be supportive of it. I think the thing I'm most proud of is the growth that we mm. really matured into making something uh, that I can look back on and say, that's a great reflection of where I was at at the time. And I, I think it's really good. Um, and then sort of leaving that special um, as most comics have maybe, you know, told you is so the starting over is so terrifying because it is so much uh, work mm. uh, to try to get back to uh, an hour. And I think I find myself in this position of always wanting it to be um, art as much as I, I love John Mulaney and I love seeing his wild success and seeing him on a stage at Radio City Music Hall. And as much as you get filled with jealousy over someone's talent and accomplishment, and I don't mean a negative uh, yeah. jealousy because I'm also an audience member. So I get to enjoy this yeah, thing yeah. that he's made. That's brilliant. But as much as I love all that and seeing it, you also have to sort of come to terms with who you, what, where, where do you stand as an artist mm -hmm. in this field? And, and what do you want to make knowing you're not going to write the way John Mulaney writes? And so I think I went through a transition after that Netflix special going, how can I grow out of stopping comparing myself mm. to, um, you know, my peers or people that are, you know, above me who are succeeding and quit saying, well, if I can't do what they can do, then maybe I'm not good or I'm not good enough and start seeing it more musically, knowing that just like music seems to almost be infinite, mm. specifically something like jazz. I mean, jazz almost seems to be like an infinite well of music. Like, what is it that I like to do that I can mm. do well that people enjoy? And people have always told me, you know, I, I don't know how much you want me to go into yeah, go sort into of a special documentary. But what led me into it was wanting to do an experimentation of knowing that a lot of people believe that my standup is always made up every time and that every <laughs> single show is different. And it's not it's not the truth. Yeah, uh, it, it, it might be different every time just because I'm I move things around um, or I might play with a joke a little longer in the middle than I usually would or I'm willing to let the room dictate the vibe and, and everything, but it, it's not an honest assessment <laughs> that I was just telling someone I would never fight 
you know, because yeah. it makes me sound like really cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah. always makes it up. And I, so I think I entered this space of going, well, if people think that, why don't I try that and see what that's like? Because improvising in my standup is my favorite thing to do. So what if I get rid of the option to go into material? Where will that take me? Yeah. My best improv in my sets come from when my act is so concrete and in my opinion, so good that I don't need it. Mm -hmm. And it's because my confidence is so high because I have something to fall back on. So I wanted to work on how do you create that confidence when you have nothing to fall back on? And what could that be like? You know, there's a variety of ways in which comedians have improvised or been improvisational comedians, right? How did you conceive of like, when you said, I'm going to improvise for a whole set, what did you think you're going to do? How are you going to do it? The, the original idea was going to be um, that, you know, with my first show being on Monday, whatever I improvised on Monday, I was allowed to work on mm. and bring back for Tuesday. And the idea was going to be that by the time I got to Saturday, is it possible that I have written an hour in a week? And that isn't something I, um, I, I think I just put that out there to go. And that's the map. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I even thought much about the map other than, hey, if we get to Saturday and I have a really good hour, I did something impressive. Um, and then I will say after Monday when it's, it's purest, <laughs> I haven't done any of, I haven't done any of those jokes or anything. The high of not uh, talking about anything um, that I had previously worked on was so strong that before Tuesday's show, I scrapped that being the mm. concept of what I was going to do. I decided it's going to be made up every single night. Um, and even uh, and I say this in the special slash documentary uh, that I decided, oh, well, if I think of stuff during the day or I read about stuff during the day, I won't think about it. I'll bring it up on stage mm, yeah, um, to that. give myself something to talk about. And I say that after the Monday show. And then I sort of didn't like that either. I didn't I didn't want to do any research or anything. And if if, if I did come across a thought um, and it came up later, then so be it. But I don't want to consciously create any sort of map for myself to, to, to do the improv. I, I told someone, I tried to liken it to, you know, when you see clips of Robin Williams and his style of, and, I, and I'm not saying, <laughs> I, you always have to be very clear with people because you get a comment where someone's like, you're no Robin Williams. And you're like, I'm not saying I am, but it's good to look up to people and yeah, have yeah. targets. So sure, my yeah. target with this was, I'd rather go down the road that looks more like what Robin Williams was doing and making it up and just going and finding it than doing crowd work. Yeah. Um, I definitely did do crowd work and I love crowd work. I just set my target to, I want it to look more like this flavor percentage wise at the end of the day than it looked like I needed to ask questions to the crowd. But when people see this, they will know, like I'm definitely doing crowd work to, <laughs> to some of the shows and some of the moments and talking to people because I, you know, I'm desperately grabbing at <laughs> anything I can to find something to talk about. You know, in, in the documentary, you don't show a full hour. So it's hard to know right. what the hours of these look like. You show like yeah. best parts and probably a mix of parts that sort of are struck, you know, you get the vibe of it, but yeah. you know, you have a background, you've done long form improv and 
especially at the beginning, they're like, here are the structures of an improv thing. So it feels like a show and not just like a random assortment of people doing whatever. Did you, how did you conceive of an hour or how did, as it, or even as it has evolved, how you'd be like, what is an hour of this? Like, you know, there's, um, right. There's people that'd be like, oh, if you go to an improv show, like a great improv show, won't even feel like it's improv. It feels like a great sketch show. But yes. I mean, I, were you like, oh, should it feel like my stand-up feels like? Should it feel like that? Like, how did you think of it? Like, this is what an hour is going to look like. I think I really wanted it to um, get to a point where I could just move faster, where I could get mm. to the thing faster. I think I, I never really totally knew what I wanted it to look like, but I sort of knew that I didn't want it to look like uh, Dead Space. Um, where I clearly was like nervous or, you know, floundering around or, or even talking about something that wasn't necessarily um, interesting. You know, when you're going up six nights in a row, naturally, as you would in any job, you just get a little bit mm. better or sharper because you're just slowly chipping away at the doubt and you're slowly chipping away at the fear And as soon as you eliminate that stuff, it's my belief that if you really are a funny person, naturally, then you should be able to find something to work with. Or if someone yells out, you know, I'm trying to think of something that, you know, would be, you know, shocking. But if if someone were happened to say something about like abortion, it's like, here is what, you know, we all have a feeling that comes Mm -hmm. over us when you hear that word. It's a strong word. And it's a it's and it's a big deal. And I think if you are truly funny, you should be able to do something with it. And yeah, uh, yeah I think what I discovered uh, and what I learned, what I kind of liked that this started to look like is that if I came across the word abortion, I liked that I had no time to make myself right yeah. or make myself the hero. I could only talk honestly about what I thought about the thing. And I found that to be, I found such a strong connection to the audience because it was interesting and captivating, not necessarily funny. Mm -hmm. And so I would kind of sit in that vulnerability and then figure out what is the thing that's funny to get me to the end of that discussion kind of thing. And I, I think I love that it started to look like that over the course of a week. The way you describe it, it sounds like when people think of doing an hour or when people even think of doing standup, they're like, OK, I need to put together all the things funny about me that I could that I could put. And it seems like from doing this, you realize, oh, the real thing is how do I just remove all the unfunny parts or all the parts that are not a good show? Right. Yeah, I it's it's. It's interesting, too, like when you when you don't have a map and you don't have the pre thought out anything you're sort of faced with a vulnerable honesty and i think what i loved so much about it and what i really kind of become obsessed with in discovering (laughs) that i really like performing like this and finding material that i later use um you know as and it's sort of what we'll talk about here is that 90 percent of what i did those six nights uh is my current hour where i really i worked on those jokes and it wasn't by that also wasn't by design. I just kind of came out of it going, oh man, I really stumbled onto some stuff that I think could be really good jokes now that I have a starting point with them. Um, 
but I think it, it, I think what's amazing to me is that if you put a lot of comics in this position, uh, you might find that you're going to sort of get a more honest representation of, of, of what maybe they really do think. Mm. And I mean that from someone who's just a writer who writes great jokes and then is a decent enough performer to, to, to sort of get on stage and do it. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm wildly jealous of those people as well. I can't, I can't do that. But even in taking a shock comic, uh, which is, um, you know, I'm sure you've discussed many times on this sure, show yeah. as, it's, as it's just a part of the fabric now. Yes, yes. But, but even comics who go on stage and want to offend you and want to say very offensive things, I think if you also put them in a position of having nowhere to start, you may find that some of those topics, they maybe really do think that. Yeah. And then some of the topics you may find they just said it because they knew it would it would rub yeah. you the wrong way. But if you put them in that moment where they don't get to quickly do the math on what the angle should be, you may find out what they really think. And it might not be, you know, it yeah. might not be shocking and it might not be offensive. That's interesting. So something happens when you come on stage that is different than most comedians where it, you don't feel like you're in a rush to start doing whatever thing you planned on doing. And I imagine with these shows, obviously you're, you're definitely not in a rush. Yes. I mean, truly, truly very scared. (laughs) So what, what happens when you go on stage, step out, they're clapping as best you can describe. What does it feel like? When I go out, even if I have material that I, could easily use, you know, it's it, the great thing is there's really no rules other than just don't do other people's jokes. And it's <laughs> yeah. the most, it's really the easiest rule because there's also nothing fun about doing other people's jokes, you know, for most true performers. So that there's this liberating feeling of kind of being like, well, there's sort of no rules because that one's just sort of a given. Um, and I think because there's no rules, you almost want to actively go against expectations. Uh, as well. Um, comics and performers of any, you know, medium uh, that defy your expectations and 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 have a good product uh, truly blow you away. And it's so memorable. And it's like, well, how do you do that in this art form where there's just going to be a microphone, there's just going to be a mm-hmm. stool, and I'm just going to go out there. But if I'm doing a 10-minute set, no one has told me with that 10 minutes has to look like and if i want to go out and do a voice that isn't my own i don't have to explain to them it just it, i just have to entertain them and 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 that doesn't even mean i have to make them laugh yeah <laughs> i just have to give them entertainment it's just because it's called comedy and people think well it should be it should be funny even that is a label that doesn't necessarily ironically doesn't necessarily <laughs> apply it really yeah. just has to be entertaining and because i know myself as a a funny person um albeit through natural causes or childhood trauma or just the influences of people around me or whatever whatever led me to this point i know like well i'm 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 funny so my natural choice will be wherever we go it's gonna be funny and so i liken it to you know if me and you are at a party and we're hanging around six people and everybody's talking my instinct whether I know those six people or not is constantly comedy. Mm -hmm. I'm always trying to find connecting dots and trying to make it uh, funny. And, and none of that is pre thought out. That is merely just having a conversation. And if it looks like I say things (laughs) that I've pre thought out, 
those six people, including you, if you and I have gone there as friends, you know it, you know it. You're like, that's so weird. Like, it's so weird that what you're doing does not fit the mold of what is currently happening. And I think because of that, a lot of people who are funny don't realize they're always sort of in that, that mind frame. So I think when I step out onto a stage, I always want to pretend in my mind that this audience is those six people. Mm. And yes, I can say things that I've said before, but what is the vibe in this? But, you know, going to your question of like reading the vibe of the crowd, if, if I go out and the performer performed me, let's just say bombed that that's the space. It's not that they're bad. And it's not that that comic was bad, but it's not, it doesn't do anyone a benefit to sort of ignore it. And I don't mean go out and rip the other comic apart because Lord knows the karma will swallow you instantly. (laughs) But it does mean this person did just bomb and there is a vibe in here. And that is the vibe. And I would say sometimes the expectation is no one's going to talk about it. Or the expectation is this comic might make a comment about it or talk to the other Mm -hmm. person. But in reality, all it means is the vibe is, wow, that person just bombed. But I don't have to pretend that that person's a comic. And I don't have to pretend that this is an audience. I can change the dynamic Mm. however around the vibe that I want it to be. I just have to be um, entertaining. And that mindset of performing that way is really what kicked off even wanting to try this idea at all. And getting to Wednesday, um, that particular night, I had an amazing Monday show where that was the first show I did about an hour. I talked about robots so much to the point where I didn't even know I I even felt that way about robots. (laughs) And then I went into Tuesday with this sort of arrogance and excitement and Tuesday's crowd size and energy was different. I think because I tried to fit Monday into Tuesday and I truly did like all the shows, but there was one person who came to all six shows and he came up to me after the sixth show and he goes, I liked them all. He goes, do you want to know which one was the worst? And I go, I immediately, I go Tuesday. And he goes, it was Tuesday. And I go, can I ask you a question? If you only came to Tuesday, is it a good show? And he goes, it was fine. It was a fine show. And I go, I know. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Cause I feel the exact same way about it. So Wednesday, I walked into Wednesday with now a greater sense of fear than Monday because I didn't want it to be fucking Tuesday so badly. And Wednesday's pace was more honest. Wednesday's topics became more honest. It was less about robots that don't necessarily relate to me. And it became more about me. And that was a big discovery that night was, oh, if I talk about me, which does feel arrogant, but is the show. I am the performer. But if I talk about real me uh, and scared me and vulnerable me and honest me, I discovered that night, I'm not really talking about me. I'm really talking about the majority of the audience that definitely relates because we all have so much more in common than we, than we think on the surface. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of what I took away from Wednesday. And I, you know, I went into it with more fear and I came out of it feeling like this amazing sense of liberation that I could get on stage and make any confession that I wanted to make about my past or who I was or what I thought because it felt good to get it off your chest, but also because I could try to make it funny. 
Um, and that also felt good. So when I talk to sort of comedians who improvise, I, I, I try to get a sense of what it's like in terms of um, is your brain like extremely conscious? Like, are is it like you took the limitless drug and you're like super aware of everything? Or is it like a flow state where you're sort of like observing yourself and your brain is just sort of like doing these things? And then yeah, which one is it for you? You know, I think you, uh, to me, the sweet spot, and I I feel like the Thursday show, which we show a lot of in the special documentary, was when I found this sweet spot where I think it's sort of a hybrid of the two things that you just uh, said. And it is so difficult um, to get to because it truly requires, um, and it, this isn't necessarily where the title comes from, but it's a big part of it it really requires conquering the fear that this won't be good. And it really requires getting to a space where you say, I don't fucking care if this is good or bad. I'm going to press the gas because I am here and I, I've, I've succeeded enough. There's enough things on the resume to confirm you're a funny person who does professional comedy. So here I am to do it. And I'm proud of myself for taking this, you know, you almost like are talking to yourself like a coach at halftime. Yeah. <laughs> but like I'm, I'm proud of myself for taking this risk to, to find these things. And I think when you can get to that space, you find that hybrid of those two things where you feel like it's limitless. Everything can work. Um, and also stepping outside of yourself and sort of seeing yourself doing it creating that flow state. I mean, when you can get into that flow where you're just almost, it feels very, it sounds arrogant, but it isn't that this is the thing, but it feels very matrix. Like, like yeah. you just suddenly are seeing things because you no longer have a, a script. And also because you no longer have doubt or fear that suddenly all these things are just present and you just know what to do with them and how to do what you want yeah. with them. And you have this amazing confidence that it will be uh, funny and interesting. And yeah, I, when we got to Thursday, Thursday became a whole other thing because that was also the first night I was like, I'm going to be my Southern character the whole time and just see what that's like. I really experimented. I would experiment on, yeah. Getting high, I got high for three of the shows and I did the other three sober. And I did some as a voice to see what happens. I did some where I gave myself a time frame on I'm, I'm not allowed to walk around or take the mic out of the mic stand for a certain amount of time because I don't want the crutch of motion. And I know mm. that motion is not a crutch. <laughs> but for me, I walk around a lot and I'm like, how hard do I have to work if I have to stand still? Yeah, yeah. And I can't take the mic out and I have to work with both props of sorts. Um, but uh, yeah. So so with Wednesday, you start this this section by saying you try to read some articles to see if it stimulate any ideas of the show. Yeah. Instead, I jerked off for what I'm pretty sure it's the 10th time this week. So where does that come from? How, does When that pops in your head and you're like, talk about going with that. Talk about knowing that's yeah. a joke and then where that takes you and then how you then sort of get to the next step. Yeah. So I think it, that, and it's, I, I can't totally remember the, the order of the jokes that sort of 
sort of blossomed, I guess, that Wednesday, you know, because as soon as you feel the rhythm or you feel that you've ended a topic, you're just sort of there. And it's not that the crowd is going to go, we'll talk about this or do this. It's really like it, because all of the fuel has to come just from you and what you're thinking in the moment, I think for whatever reason at that particular moment. And I, and I have to say it's that, that particular moment in general has, has caused me a great deal of growth as a performer, Mm. but in that moment, for whatever reason, my brain was like, well, just tell them the truth. Just, like, instead of going, well, what's a funny topic? Or how can I be funny? For whatever reason, in that specific moment, my brain was like, well, just tell them the truth. Like, you you jerked off and you've, you've been doing that. <laughs> and, and, and you do that. And, and then you just find yourself saying this thing that when the audience is quiet or laughing, you know they know what you're talking about. And you very quickly find this safe mm. space to keep going about the topic. And you almost become obsessed with going, well, how, how much more vulnerable can I get? Um, and so that moment really started to grow uh, because of that, like telling the crowd, I, I jerked off a lot and I don't even know if I want <laughs> to do that. And I don't even yeah. know if I actually even like it. And all of this is just the truth. And if you're laughing, it's because you're like, huh, yeah, me too. <laughs> I feel the same way. It's interesting because you have a joke in your last special that is like the, I wrote a joke about this topic version of the same thing, which is like. Women, I don't know if you know this about men, but when we're in our 20s and our brain is like jerk off right now, we're like, uh, yeah, you got it. <laughs> you got it. When we're in our 30s and our brain is like, jerk off right now, I promise you, all of us are like, when the fuck does this stop? I don't want to do this shit anymore. It's been 20 goddamn years. I haven't liked it for 10. I just kept doing it because I thought I'd die. Stay away from me. And stay away from my family. That is interesting that something about doing in this way was like, oh, this saying in this way, because you know, it is exactly true. Yeah. Because you know, it's exactly true. They know, you know, like they're like, oh, this is a completely different thing. Yeah. I no, I think that's a great point. Cause I think it was also, um, you know, in, in reflecting on it, I think it was also this sort of like moment of revelation of going of, you know, Saying saying a joke like that in the last special, it was like, well, this is a joke and I know it's funny. Here's this setup and then here's this punchline mm-hmm. to it. And I think my revelation in that moment was like, well, now you're actually you're saying, you know, you're saying this again, but this time it's actually the truth. And this <laughs> time it's actually a confession. And, you know, whether it needs to be, you know, not necessarily confession in the sense of like, religiously but yeah. a confession to the crowd that you're like no no for real i i am doing this and i do feel this way about it and the the second part of that revelation was like oh if i don't say this with the intent of making it a joke and i say it with the intent of just telling the truth that matrix thing kicks in where you just yeah. suddenly go and now here are all the directions i can go 
because I'm not hiding from it. And I'm not saying it so that I'm being, because even, you know, even if you going on stage and be like, I drug off a lot and I can't believe I still do it. And people laugh at it because they're like, yeah, that's, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. But yet you can still make yourself kind of cool and the hero. Yeah. Even with a topic like that. But I remember how I said it um, that night. And I almost said it in this exhaustive way of like, you know what? The, the jig is up. Yeah. I, I do do it a lot. And I, I actually don't know why. And I need to tell you that I, I don't like it a lot yeah. of the times. And yet still, I'm doing it. And bam, there is that, that matrix of going, well, tell them what you've watched. Tell yeah. them when you watch it. Tell them why you think. Do you, did something happen as a kid? Like you're just suddenly asking yourself different questions that, you know, like I said, it felt so liberating. Like you really were getting the truth off of your chest and not even a truth. That's like, you know, a bad truth that someone <laughs> yeah. would judge you for, but it just still felt like you were telling the world a secret. And yeah. I think that's what led me to say just after that, that I've watched gay porn. Yeah. Because, because I, I was like, I have, and I specifically have watched it to want to see it, to not, not an attraction to it because it's not, that's just not my actual attraction. It's not, it's just not who I am, Yeah. but to want to see it, to know, but this is people's attraction. So I want to see the thing that they want to do and the Mm -hmm. thing that they want to see and who they are. And it just felt so liberating to also tell that as a straight white man (laughs) to an audience, Hey, I watched this and I don't, and, and I've done that joke. You know, that, that really grew after that night. And I told that joke in all kinds of places, (laughs) you know, places like Nashville, Tennessee or Huntsville, Alabama, where the, the, the tone is suddenly like, Oh, that's strange. And then I just explained to them why it's actually not, yeah, yeah. Strange at all. It's actually really not. <laughs> it's not strange in any way. You know, the the, the topics you brought up. So it's like you, you talk about the porn addiction, Googling porn addiction, the gangbangs and the feelings you feel when you watch that or the, the gay. Were they <laughs> memories that were they things that you thought about? And because you're now allowed to say it or were they things you'd even think you thought? would think about. And then because you're here, like, oh, I actually do think about this. These are things I haven't even allowed myself to think about. This is the, that, that is, that is such a great question because I've also asked myself <laughs> that question. Like, cause I, I did want to know like, well, where does that come from? Because if I can sit in my room and figure out where in my brain that comes from, maybe that's something I can always just willingly mm. and knowingly tap into. And the, the thing that I liken it to the most that it still doesn't really give a great answer is that when you experience deja vu, my sister told me at one point, you're not really thinking about something that happened. You're not re-experiencing your brain is just like has a little twitch. And suddenly you think that that's a memory. Yeah. And so you go, Oh, that's deja vu. And I remember being so kind of disappointed in that. It kind of like took all the fun out of, (laughs) took all the fun out of what I thought deja vu could, could be. And, and I think, to to answer your question, it's kind. It feels similar to that, where in those moments of saying those things, 
my brain is like, am I just uncovering it right now? Or has this been sort of festering and I just haven't given it uh, like sort of a, a conscious like attention to it? Um, and I, and I kind of don't, I kind of don't know. I mean, there's some things that, that have yeah. popped up in my act or, you know, even in the, those six shows where I sort of do know, like, oh, I have, that has crossed my mind. And now I'm just saying it for the first time or like working it out. Mm-hmm. But then there's others where I'm like, have I thought about that? Or am I finally just now seeing it? Because some of the things that I said, I said so clearly in like knowing how I felt about it yeah. that I really was like, is, th- is this a space in my mind that I can tap into? Or is this like an ongoing discussion that I'm never paying attention to inside yeah. my own in how I feel about uh, stuff? Like I said, both are great. I love that they're both there, but yeah, trying to figure out where it comes from. I, I, just, I don't, I don't know which one it, it is. We're right back with more Rory Scoville. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Zell. The recruiter said all I needed to do was send five hundred dollars to cover mandatory safety training, and the job was mine. In a world where financial crimes are more and more sophisticated, there's a team that's got your back. Yee-haw! Come in, safe squad. We got a 10-3. Copy that, dispatch. We're on it. Hop in, Skip. We got a phony recruiter. Safe squad. The crime drama everyone is talking about. I know it's only my first day, but that sounds like a pretty cut-and-dry job scam. Strap in, rookie. These days, criminals can even make it look like it's your bank calling. But that's where we come in. My what? It's my savings account. Compromised? No, I won't hold. No, I didn't authorize a $12,000 withdrawal. That's my life savings. Why don't you come with me? I'll show you how to report to the FTC. What payment platform did you use? Let's contact them, too. Don't miss the TV event of the season, Safe Squad. Hey, Ace. Yeah, kid. You're right. That was one hell of a first day. Learn how you can spot the signs of a scam so you don't have to call the Safe Squad by visiting www.vox.com slash HQ. Remember, never send money online to people you don't already know and trust. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. And we're back with Rory Scovel. You you mentioned um, to get to this place where you're that open. Sex is sort of the easiest way to like get to do that because it's like, oh, we'll be funny to the audience. It, like it wasn't just like, oh, I'm improvising. It's easy to do sex. It's more that like this sure. is a hard thing to do. And sex is the easiest topic to get an audience to laugh at. Yeah, I, I think that's what I 
Because even when I, I, and I said this in the movie when I talked about like starting out, because I really did, I, I really had a lot of sex jokes when I first started. And I, I don't know why, <laughs> but there's this part of me that thinks like, well, you can make it funny. You can get people's attention because it is a jarring yeah. subject that feels, you know, sort of like taboo or someone's like, oh, he's talking about blowjobs, for instance. You're like, well, what? All right. I, let me hear what he's going to say about it because it's now piqued my interest. So I think there was early on, there was sort of a, and I think it sort of relates to this improv, improvised show. It's almost an insecurity. Like, well, how can I talk about something that piques their interest mm. if I find myself in a place where I don't know um, what, what to talk about? And th- th- so that was kind of my answer in the, the movie. But the more that I've reflected on it, because I've thought about it a lot. I, you know, I've obviously <laughs> seen, um, seen the documentary special so many times and the different iterations and cuts and everything that I've always thought about that question and why specifically Tuesday and Wednesday, I think were the most sexual. I've always gone back to, well, like, why was it? And my conclusion that I, can't, I don't know if it's right, but I think because especially on Wednesday, I found this vulnerable space I think my conclusion was that there's a little bit of therapy for me mm. in sex. I, I am, I do think about it and I, and I don't think I think about it a lot in the, the sort of sense of like, well, men think about it a lot or, yeah, yeah. you know, what have you. I think, I think that maybe something in my, my childhood had turned me on about it, or maybe the first time I saw porn was interesting enough to me or, or something, there's something about the physical action of sex that I'm just very interested in and uh, attracted to. Because when I think back and I go, well, early on, I had a lot of sex jokes. I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, that's not totally true. I did early on, but I still do. And yeah. I'm not, and I'm not nervous in the same way. It's like, why does that keep coming up? My, like I said, it may be right or not, but I think I think it has something deeper in my my psyche to do with um, sort of uh, something that makes me feel better or detracts yeah. me from yeah. heavier, scarier things that maybe I think about. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's my assumption as a non-professional therapist who truly has no idea. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think that's why I became so much more vulnerable on Wednesday because yeah. I I. I was on the fly having to talk about it. I couldn't sit and go, well, what will make me sound cool? I know I keep saying that, but it really is a huge part of, of what separates the sitting and writing versus the improv. Yeah. It's, it's, it is interesting. It is. If I have no sense of how many therapists listen to this, uh, but it's like truly like, it is like, it is like become a hacking thing, hacking to say, but it truly is like Freud would have a field day with this idea. <laughs> Which is like, oh, you tap into your unconscious and you have all these feelings about sex and childhood. It's like cartoonish. Um, But it does really feel that way of like, you know, your entire career, sex things had been manifested through like past through your ego, whatever. But now when you strip away that, it doesn't mean you're you weren't doing sex as a way to sort of hide yourself. Is that actually sort of you are hiding yourself in the way you talk about sex? and, And now sex is actually a thing that is wrapped into a lot of like what your vulnerability and sex are related seemingly like yeah. that necessarily like that it's one led to another the other one back it's like you're being vulnerable so you felt comfortable talking about sex you're talking about sex so you felt comfortable being vulnerable right 
And I, I, I think there's a, a comfort in it as well, because, yeah. you know, if I say I watch a lot of porn and people laugh, I suddenly don't feel so bad about this thing I'm slightly embarrassed by because it's like, oh, that's all of us. So it's yeah, also yeah. a little bit of me trying to buy, you know, you know, hey, you guys are laughing and maybe I'm talking about something. And when you laugh, you all look around going, oh, we're all laughing. So maybe we all experience it. I kind of like sitting there going, hey, me too. I'm also relieved yeah. to know that this shocking thing that I think is embarrassing or shocking is maybe not, not so much. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think that's when the drug really kicks in because you're like, well, what else, mm. what else can I feel better about <laughs> if I realize we're all sort of on the, the same page about yeah, it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and it's not that I have these specific examples off the top of my head but when you think about the makeup of who you are and where you come from and what your your knowledge is you know my my immediate instinct is something like white guilt what jokes can i say or topics or or how vulnerable can i be mm. talking about white guilt or my privilege that acknowledges something but also maybe makes me a better person by having a room go oh he's right yeah actually i've mm. never put it in words either but i feel that way also about my situation. I don't, that, that one just comes to mind because it's like, um, it, it falls into that topic of, well, what, what feels vulnerable and honest. Yeah. And it's, I think stuff like, you know, race gets in there and you, you, you want it. And also it's a topic that you're like, Oh, I want to talk about this. There's, there's a lot there. There's so much there personally it, that you want to interesting like say. that the way you put it, because there, there, you know, there's, histories of sort of confessional comedians and what they how they tell the truth and what they tell the truth about but what is interesting is the way you phrase it which is if it allows you and the audience to be at the same place at the same time because you're both experiencing this thing of like oh we are all at the same moment realizing this is okay realizing we feel yeah. this way yeah and i think it's also perspective yeah you know going back to shock comedians you know, I, I am just not drawn to, hey, I said a thing where the audience went, oh, shit, like, what yeah. the fuck? And maybe they laughed or they didn't laugh, but they're like, oh, my God, I, I, I don't personally see that as getting me or them. Um, and this is just my opinion. But it, to me, it's like I'm not getting us where I want to get us. Yeah. Whereas like and, and I don't remember if it made the cut in the documentary, but at some point we talked about 9-11. Uh, when I was on stage, because I brought up conspiracy theories and someone had said 9-11 being an inside job. And I was like, oh, yeah, this also is something that sits on people's minds as a possibility or an absurd theory. Yeah. But talking about it and not just going, well, why don't I make a lot of like jokes where people are shocked? I'm, I'm talking about a, a terrorist this way or shocking about you know people who died in this horrific event. Why don't I, why don't we try to talk about it where it actually gets us somewhere where maybe we can feel something better about it. And maybe we did laugh, which you feel guilty about. Yeah. But also there is healing in that, you know? Yeah. It's so it, that's another example of you have a pretty well-known 9-11 joke from your, yeah. Th that. Yeah. Just like the sort of differences of the like subconscious and unconscious versions of how these things manifest itself. The, yeah. the other thing I was wondering about, so at the end of this show, I, I sorry to interrupt you, but I will say when someone in the crowd says 9-11 and you can't go to your joke that you <laughs> yeah. know would crush, 
it is like <laughs> it's truly like a carrot just dangling. It in is front like, of your face. A like a late night host. Do anything about it. Like it a late night host being like, like oh, 9-11, huh? And you're like, <laughs> you're like, I wait, I have this. I have the joke that works right now. And yeah, it it kills you. I, I do. That is uh, one of my favorite. I think of that joke all the time. Um, <laughs> it's really good. All right. So what then happened? So towards the end of this, there's the thing that I think you do really, really well. And you do often is you get a sense of where the audience is and where they're hesitant. And you sort of call it out and they, you yell at them for it. Um, and you're like, I'm making this up. This is what is that feeling? <laughs> what are you trying to do with that? Right. You're you're it, you could do that as a way out, right? You can do that and be like, okay, we're not talking about this anymore. Or you can do this as a way of like, and now we're back in. Yeah. I think um I think I I've tried to calculate because I think I kind of said a version of that maybe like three times that whole week. One mm. once on on a show. So maybe three shows. And I there is a part of me that even in the moment I said it, hated that I was saying it, like in a crutch kind yeah. of way. And then there's another part of me that was like, no, you need to remind them because they don't seem to understand that, which then also made me angry at myself. Like, you're so insecure, you now need to blame them for not understanding the thing they clearly bought a ticket to yeah, and are yeah. very well aware of what's going on because you don't know where the show should go. And then there's also a third version of sort of saying it because it re I really could make it fun, like a yeah. thing to like bring up. And and there were some times that I've watched in the cut and that will also be on the album where I'm like, no, I, I like that I said it there um, as a thing and, and like as an out, but also as a laugh. I knew I could yeah. get like a laugh off of it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I will say like, I, I kind of didn't, want to to say it I, mm -hmm. I there's one time i said it and i think it works perfectly and it fit beautifully in and it's when i was doing my voice on thursday night uh talking about uh something but then the other times i'm like oh you you're you're afraid yeah and, and and here's the other part of that i then like that honesty of like i wish i would have just said to the crowd i'm afraid right now that this isn't good yeah as opposed to stating it in a way that won't translate to them i'm afraid right now instead just translates to them like oh he's yelling at us you know i do love yelling at the crowd it's a lot of fun <laughs> yeah you're one of the all-time greats <laughs> it's, it's fun to do and also like i've seen crowds that are like i love it when you yell at us and i'm like yeah and i love doing it and i honestly don't know why i'm not like an angry <laughs> i'm not like an angry person but there's just something about the rhythm and something to it but it's also yeah, like there, there so often what you yell at i feel like you yelling, the definitive you yelling is like yelling at the moon for being out during the day, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's sort of like a nonsensical kind of yes. yell, yeah. <laughs> um, you you uh, you sort of end and you scream that, uh, I don't even know how we got to this point. Um, yeah. And I feel like that is part of your goal, right? Like, I feel like you talked about uh, seeing the band fish and like you, they have jams. You're like, what song are we even playing? Can you talk about that? And if these sets yeah. are a jam, what are you trying to achieve? How, why? Yeah. I, 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 I think what I, I, when I've gone to a fish concert and like, I am not like a, a huge fish fan. I like the concert. I like the space of the concert. I like the vibe of the concert. 
I like that their set list is always different. I like that they're going to go into an improvised jam that could go for 25 minutes, which I know is easy to make fun of. And I know there's a lot of people that are like, I don't like their music. And I get it. I totally am like, I get that you don't like it. I just happened to see them at a young enough age where I was super high and and it then got burnt into my mind. Like, oh, this is fun. And I've reconfirmed, um, you know, many times over that I still do uh, feel that way. Um, You know, I've seen I've seen them in the middle of a jam, a song that I don't know. And I don't know if it's ended and the next one started. I have no idea. But my eyes are closed and I am getting so many so much writing done in Mm. my mind because I, and this is why I like jazz so much because I don't know what's next. My mind is not expecting it. I don't know what's coming next. So now I've like, it's sort of freed my mind to just wander. And my natural instinct is to wander towards either thinking about things that are very dark and depressing or thinking about things that I Mm. think are funny that I want to write down. And if I'm lucky, it's a very dark, depressing thing that I figure out how to make funny. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the best medicine. But um, I think I've always wanted to go. Well, that's music, and music is this medium that can that can do this for people. What is the way in which I could do that for stand up? And also, I I love the idea of the Grateful Dead. I love how they became. <laughs> The Grateful Dead. And I think I've always been like, if someone were to tell me they were my number one fan and I played Madison, Wisconsin, and there were going to be five shows, how could I make it so that Mm. that person could come to five shows and really feel like they saw five shows instead of one show five times? And I I think that the, the the thing I just said is definitely the the seed mm-hmm. of what I do want to accomplish. And I think the improvising and going, well, let's see if you can be a version of the Grateful Dead or a version of Fish, but in the stand-up version where you can't just jam out with a group. The group <laughs> is actually the room and you are playing lead guitar and you have no choice but to keep playing for an hour and you don't yeah. know and you don't know what you're you're playing. I, I think I just want to try to give to people the thing I got from another uh medium. And yeah. you know, honestly, it's a it is, I will say it is a, what I just said is a little ridiculous. But the fact that it's a crazy <laughs> challenge is what drives me yeah. to to be more creative. Whether I ever hit that target or not, having a crazy target has kind of led me to to here, you know, having made this thing and that's crazy and talking yeah. about it, you know. Um, I want to talk, um, th- th- even the idea of like, you're in a band, you're the guitarist and the audience is the band. I, I want to talk to you about connection or the ideas of connection. So first, I, um, if you, uh, I, I want to talk about disconnection, which, um, you know, all communities have certain versions of uh, c- issues with that, a sort of tendency to be observers. Um, outside of performing, do you have a hard time feeling connected or if not currently, was it an issue growing up or when you're younger, it, you know, was detachment an issue? Have you noticed that happening? Was that a thing? What do you, what specifically do you mean? Like the detachment? Just like, like the, um, I think the, the feeling of not feeling connected to people, like when you're not performing or maybe it's a thing that ever since you perform, you've been able to carry that on. But do you feel this general feeling of feeling disconnected or have you felt that? Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely felt it. I couldn't, um, 
I don't know how much it's the driving force. I mean, I could, in, in me saying that, I could still find out it's a hundred percent the driving force. Sure. Um, but I, I, I think when I'm on stage, I've told people this. Like me being on stage, while it is this, it's this performance and it's crazy. I actually find it being closer to who I actually am as a person mm. and how I operate that. I can't really do offstage because it's, I would hate myself. <laughs> like it, it's annoying. It would be annoying to be that in other, you know, at, at, at home or settings or, or like social settings. But I, I don't know that when I am offstage that I feel this huge connection um, to a lot of people. I don't, I don't like the sin. I, like when I'm on stage, I want all eyes on me. Yeah. Yeah. But when I'm offstage, I don't want any, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't like, I could probably make a decent amount of money selling merch, but I have a very difficult time uh, doing it because I'm, yeah. I feel so awkward and strange. And also I just want to be that person up there to the audience and not be, and now I'm over here having, you know, a drink and let's chat. You know, I don't, I, I think if there is a, a disconnect, um, I don't know that it's always uh, negative and yeah. I don't know that it's always um, uh, not something that I'm forcing. I, I think I, I, I do force it, but I, yeah, I, I would say that I don't, I don't view myself as like, you know, I, I know some comics who are truly the life of the party and I love them so much because it's like a free show <laughs> that yeah. you just get to live with. Like it's just there. And I think part of me is jealous of that. I wish I could be that, but also as I've gotten older, I realize I'm just not. Yeah. Um, I'm just not that in most uh, in most settings. And I, I, yeah, I don't know if it's if it's disconnect or where it comes from, but yeah, yeah I feel I, <laughs> very different from the onstage person. Yeah, it's it's um, how do I put this? It's it's something that. I, I have always wondered because I do think of you as a particularly connected comedian. And, you know, when I was preparing, I would hear you talk about um, losing your mother when you were really, really young. And mm -hmm. I, I lost uh, my mom when I was young as well, but not as you were one. I was a little bit older than that. And I do think there is a certain sort of ex there. There's a certain ways that can affect a person, you know, and. Um, you can have like avoidant attachment or you can fear to getting close to people. You can feel being yeah. vulnerable yourself. You There's a tendency to minimize yourself to please others. And and this is not to say you have these things and I'm, I'm telling you, but is it, I imagine, <laughs> um, I was thinking about that and there's this um, book that was talking about, this guy was talking to Bono and he, see, he saw Bono play for like 10,000 people. And... Um, and he goes up to Bono. He's like, "I'm so jealous of you. You get to pay. You have to. You get ten thousand people screaming your name." And Bono, who also lost, uh, I believe, his mother when he's young, was like, "I'm jealous of you. If I don't have ten thousand people in front of me, I can't feel like a person." Oh, that's is, so interesting. And I think he's obviously this is an extreme case because I. Do, but like, I do think I, I have no sense. Like, what do you feel about all these thoughts? I just because I think of you as. I think a lot of comedians to do it, it's so hard to do. The drive to do it is because they find something on stage that they can't create off. Yes. Um, and it's different for everybody. That's why people think all oh, yeah. comedians are messed up. It's like some, it's not just mental issues, but there is something. 
Yeah. And it feels like for you, connection is a thing that you've really been able to harness on stage. I think it's a great observation, the idea of that connection, because I will, I, when I do go on stage, and I've told people this, I don't know all comedians, I think, of, of, of a certain level of, of skill. They just can feel a room. I truly believe we're all capable of it. Yeah. But, you know, when you are on stage by yourself, it's just very heightened because of the dynamic of that situation. But I really think that a lot of people, if they got over the fear of doing that, they would then tap into going, oh, I can actually feel that that table of four in the back is giving this vibe. And I can feel this vibe over here. And it's a strange thing. And it's not necessarily just a facial response or a laugh. It really is because you really can't see most of the crowd. The lights are so in your face. Yeah, yeah. But you really just feel uh, a room. So to the idea of connection, there is um, there is that, that. That is sort of the starting point. That is truly a very powerful drug. And if you can uh, control those vibes, and it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, oh man, it is like, it, you, it's just a, the, you're a Jedi. It's just, there's something about it that's so uh, incredible. Um, but I think, because I think my mother's death is, is something that is such a, a it's obviously such a major part of our yeah. lives. I mean, it, it, it truly is something so many people don't experience or understand what it does to you. And also you and I probably don't fully understand what it does to us because we don't sit here, you know, I don't know how old you were, but it was on my first birthday. So I yeah. don't sit here knowing the person that I never had. And it's its own version of a, of a tragedy. Um, but I think for my own psyche, it definitely puts me in a place of going, no, people do die and it can happen. And horrible things can absolutely happen. And there's a little bit of me fighting against those feelings by knowing that I feel so good on stage, mm. but also knowing these people are not so different. And if we can all be in here laughing, there is something about that where you just go, you know, I know some people will be like, just be at the show and forget the outside world. I don't like saying that, you know, <laughs> I just want that to happen. And for people to not even realize yeah. uh, that it's happened because I know that it feels so good. I've told so many people, my mindset when I go on stage is I want to have fun. If I'm having fun, I know for a fact it was a good show. And if I got off stage and you said you absolutely bombed and I said, no, I, I had fun. So I know that I didn't bomb because bombing is when I don't have fun. I was like, so if I'm having fun, I gave the product, I gave yeah. what I could. And I know some people connected with it because I wouldn't have had fun um, if I didn't. Um, and then the, the other part of that connection is that if, you know, when I, the clubs that I play, you know, I think they hold 300 to 350 people. So on the nights or the shows that I've sold 350 tickets, you know that you are performing for 350 strangers with different lives and different experiences. And not all of them are there because they've heard of me. I'm not yeah. at that level where there aren't still some stragglers coming in. Like, sure, I might have fans, but then there's also people that just went to a comedy club. Yeah, yeah. And when they're in there and you talk about uh, something that gets everybody going, it's honestly your greatest sense of hope <laughs> that all the things in this world that are wrong, you just want to explain to people, we, we aren't 
so we, like we can do we can be better there's, there's hope yeah. for the world not that you know how to apply it and not that it's working but when you come off stage you go fuck i wish people could understand that a room full of strangers can laugh at the dumbest i mean truly the dumbest that you've seen my stuff i have some yeah, very yeah. <laughs> stupid moments but yet a room can laugh at it and you just go that's proof <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. proof that we're not all these different people yeah, there's all that the time, you know? in the special, there's a moment after that Thursday show where Mark Norman, the comedian Mark Norman, was talking about how incredible it was. Yeah. He's like, it's like you all knew each other. He's like, it was like a bunch of friends, which I yeah. think is that that feeling of like, I mean, it, it's almost like your your souls are friends or you're like, you're, you're there. The, all these ideas of who we are are like our egos and the people we present ourselves as. But when they're laughing in this way, it's like you're friends with the people that we are are not presenting ourselves as it's just sort of who we are yeah and i and i think you eliminate you try your best to eliminate the identifying factors that would make us not like each other mm. or make us go yeah but we're not friends i think all the time like you know in an apocalyptic scenario where you're suddenly thrown in as a group of 20 people from different levels of uh wealth <laughs> and different levels of or or different uh, backgrounds of either your your race or your religion or your gender, whatever whatever the things are, it's almost like in that scenario, those things suddenly do not matter. Yeah, it's the apocalypse. You are either contributing or you are not contributing. But there's no reality where you're going to succeed by going. Well, we can't. There's 20 of us, and we're just too different. Yeah. And 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 I think it's because and and they would maybe, you know be able to figure out some means of survival simply because they just got rid of the other things mm. that they think are so important that really, that really aren't. And I think that's what I like about a stupid stand-up joke. Like I've eliminated so many things and we can just sit in here and laugh together. And you just want to point it out to people like, doesn't this feel good? Yeah. Doesn't it feel good to get along with people more than it does to, to argue or fight? I, I always wonder this with sort of comedians who have si silly sides of them and then have kids who are inherently childlike, right? They are children. They are not childlike. They are children. <laughs> what has having a kid taught you about playing on stage, being silly, how to do what you're trying to achieve? You know, it's, uh, I, I don't totally know. I think I actually try to go the other way where I mm. try to make sure my daughter knows that, you can be silly and you don't have to take things so um, seriously. And it's not that I'm trying to be like, you should do, you should do stand up. You should <laughs> yeah. be a comic. Um, I would like to not damage her so much to where she felt the need to do that. Um, but I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I will say in terms of really starting to think about my career, it made me uh, mature a little bit. And start going, all right, well, what are my goals as opposed to, hey, I'll just do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. It really made me go, well, actually, you know, and I and I shot that special yeah. after she was born. And I think a big part of, of, you know, not just having done the Charleston one, but I think because she was now born, I was like, well, these jokes serve a purpose. And that purpose is not just entertainment. It really is my job. And it really is my income. And I think in a good way, it made me take uh, it made me take my job more yeah. seriously. In in a good way, you know. Um, 
how has uh, drugs influence your perspective on these things? Be in marijuana, be so in much. mushrooms. So much so. <laughs> um, Please explain. I, I, uh, so I started in DC back in 2004. And I think the first time, I know the first time I went on stage high was at Dr. Dremos in uh, Clarendon, Virginia. No longer there, but my God, what an amazing room. And uh, I can't remember, it was probably in 05 that I did that for the mm -hmm. first time. And I didn't do well, for sure. It was so trippy to realize that my timing was wildly off. And, you know, obviously you think things are slower than they are or they're faster than they are. So I think what I, I think what it changed about me, because I then decided I'm, I'm going to get high a lot and write jokes and I'm gonna get high a lot and go on stage and play in that space. I think it, it opened me up. It opened me up to be just what the moment actually, uh, actually is. And actually, if I, if a, if I start a joke that suddenly goes over here to fully commit to going over there because the pot sort of eliminated doubt. Yeah. I wasn't like, oh, I hope I'm being funny. The pot, and I'm not saying this is always a good thing. Sure. The pot was like, you're crushing. <laughs> Keep going. You're a genius. And then you come off stage and people are like, that was horrible. But you, you do walk away going, maybe I was horrible and I thought I was doing great, but it did make me go down that road as mm. far as I could go. And you sort of have to, um, you know, I mean, every comic has bombed and there's a benefit to it. I think pot kind of opened me up to bombing doesn't have to be a waste of time. There's still something in there that you can learn. And I think over time you learn, all right, well, I'm going to go all the way down this road and I'm not going to bomb and I'm going to do my best to make it, um, to make it work. I mean, I think the reason I even have this special documentary is, you know, attributed to the fact that you know, I, I would get on stage high and explore. Yeah. I mean, mushrooms too. I mean, mushrooms just, you, you know, obviously the perception of reality and, and your existence and all these things, which, you know, talking about mom stuff. I mean, I certainly have this overbearing weight of existential, like, like, well, my mom died. So I know people die, but also what does that mean? And where did she go? And as you know, I was raised Catholic. So I, you know, it's burned into my brain that this is what you have to do to get to heaven or hell. And, you know, mushrooms, cleansed me of all of that mm. uh perception of our reality and what it is and you start to really go oh we are informed constantly of what reality is and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's correct or or right and i i think you know not not to get i think it gave me deeper topics to talk about yeah um which you know it very much like the getting on stage saying i watch porn like I, that's maybe not a deeper topic, but honestly, to me, I think that is a deeper topic because it's this inward thing. Yeah. And mushrooms gave me the 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 insight to start to go inward um, with what I what I think is important or my perception. Not that it's necessarily deep and not that it's necessarily relevant to everybody, but it just showed me, hey, you don't have to go on stage and go, aren't paper clips annoying? <laughs> That can be very funny. That yeah. can be wildly funny and brilliant. It truly yeah. can be brilliant. But it made me go, oh, I think I'd rather talk about what I think happens when we die. Yeah, yeah. Or what what is love to me? And that's not just mushrooms. I mean, that was going and doing shows in Dublin, Ireland and seeing how 
Irish comics perform and what they talk about and their word choice made me go, oh, there's a whole other world. It's like discovering other genres of music. Mm, you know, when you're a yeah. kid, if someone's shoving, you know, Milli Vanilli and, uh, you know, New Kids on the Block in your face, because that's what you, your sister listens to, you then turn 15 and you, you know, you come across a band like Tool and you go, oh, it's the this, okay, all right. Uh, that it, That's not just music. Yeah. That's literally everything is, yeah. is, you know, I don't know what the wording is, but. <laughs> yeah. I, I, on the other side of this, I, you know, I talked to a lot of comedians about the relationship to their audience. And I feel like this is the decade in which comedians have been thinking about this really for the first time in, in a different way, which is like, there's just sort of this conflicting goals in some ways of what the audience expects from a show and what the comedian hopes for a show. And they're all different people. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you know, you might be looking for this connection. You might be looking to like create your art and they're just looking to have a fun night. They're just looking to do whatever. Um, how, how do you think about your audience? Has it evolved? How do you think about, you know, having some people in the audience that might be fans, some people in the audience who might not know you. How do you, how have you thought about this and the sort of like, just the inherent conflict of like, I'm here, up here personally expressing myself and you just want a fun night out. Um, do you mean anything specifically post pandemic or just in general? Well, I think the pandemic has definitely heightened this fact. I think the height, what COVID also brought in, and I do want to, your perspective on which is like you get so much connection from the audience and then for a year and a half you don't have that yeah <laughs> i speaking to that specifically yeah. um i i was welcoming it uh, at first because i've always been on the road and i've always been on the go and that's just been the case since i sort of went full-time and like 2006 and i went out i quit my job and then from that point on it was like i'm either on the road or i'm uh you know, working temp jobs or I'm moving, you know, working yeah. for a moving company or what have you to make money. Um, that was the first time it was like, well, the thing that you, you've been doing and love doing is now not going to happen. And I was early on, I was very excited by that because it almost felt like someone was, I, I've wanted to take a little bit of a break to step back and sort of rethink what it is, but there's no time to do that because it is your job. Um, and so this made me do it. And that sort of excited me. I had saved enough money that I was like, well, you know, I mean, also you probably remember early on, we all kind of thought, and in four months, we're all going to be right back to where we, like you really had this absurd optimism. Um, and then every day you were like, oh, I think it's going to be a year and a half. Um, so I, I was thinking like, oh yeah, let's take this break and let's figure it out and we're fine on money. And then I will say getting into like winter of last year, around December, and I know that's a long time, I stopped in March, but I got to December and it really started to hit me that I, I, I missed it and I really loved it. I really loved getting up there. And I think I was relieved to know that it wasn't my ego. Mm. It wasn't the like adoration. It wasn't needing people's attention, which you sort of assume that's who you are. You're like, oh, I crave attention and that's why I do this and I'm funny, so I'm able to do it. I've always thought that until December of 2020, where I was like, I now know that I want to get on stage and it isn't to feed my ego and it isn't for them to adore me. I want to get on stage and I want to tell a room 
full of strangers what I think about the murder of George Floyd. And I want them to hear me and I want to get them to agree with me. And I want them to laugh at what I'm saying. And I don't want to do it because I, it will make me feel good. I really want to do it because that is a space uh, th- that is actually a space that allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. And either I succeed or I fail. And maybe my opinion is right or it's wrong. But I think I learned in that in all those months, there isn't another space that allows you to do it in that way. You know, all the social media accounts, it doesn't matter. It, you, it's not doing it the same way. And you aren't saying it. You're having to like post it and type it. And then it becomes a conversation. This other is like, no, no, we're not here to discuss this. Yeah. I am telling you what I think. And then I will move on to the next uh, topic. And I think it just maybe reconfigured for me in my mind, the power of mm. what it means to have spoken word as, a, as an art form and a craft. That's really interesting because I, I really was not expecting you to go that way in that answer. It's what, but what about what about it? I mean, like you know, we talked about a lot of what you try to do with your stand in terms of your relationship of how you and the audience are connecting. What is it about stand up that is a space where I mean, you believe change either either not necessarily like grand social change can happen by one stand up show, but you believe it is a rare space in which people's people do come and are able to be opened up. What is it about it? What is it about how you pre- approach it? How, what is it about how an audience approaches? What is it? I, I think it's, I think it's exposure to it. I think it's that, you know, I grew up in, in Greenville, South Carolina, which is obviously in the Bible belt. It's in a state that not that all States don't have this, but it's in a state that has a very openly historic racial uh, past. It's mm. definitely not a place that is like this big city that is like widely diverse. Uh, it's maybe not what people picture when they picture um, the South. I think the South is rarely what people, yeah, <laughs> I think they definitely picture it worse than, than, than what it is, but it also doesn't mean it's better. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily good. Um, I think I think about who I was when I was 19 and I don't remember that person. And I don't know that I like that person. If I met that person, I go, this dude's fucking annoying. I don't agree with his politics. I don't, I think he's made racist jokes. I think he's behaved in a homophobic uh, way. And I, I now know as an older person, it's because I had no exposure or influence outside of the bubble that I lived in. And so I sort of look back and I go, I, you know, outside of, you know, I, I know for a fact, I didn't hurt anybody. I go, I forgive your misinformation, <laughs> younger Rory. I forgive your faults as an older version, because I'm proud to say you aren't that anymore. You moved and you changed and you grew. And I think I see that in audiences. There's no way 350 people show up and they're all good people. Yeah. But also... <laughs> None of us are 100% good. And it's like, well, what are some of the general things where maybe there are some people at this show tonight where I can plant a seed where they're just willing to see something from the other side? Because sometimes that one thing changes all the other things. We don't have to cover all of the topics, but if you can just say the right thing in the right way, 
I really believe because I'm a product of it. Yeah. That you something really can plant in their mind where they go, I've never, oh my God, you're right. I never thought of it that way, or I never looked at it that way. And I, I've sort of always felt that way, but I will say the pandemic really showed me like, oh, this is powerful. This isn't, this doesn't have to be abstract. You can tell, it's not a song with lyrics that maybe are like, yeah, maybe you get what I'm trying to say. It's a metaphor. I'm on stage telling you exactly the thing so that there is no mincing of words. And I, and you try to figure out, well, how do you talk to someone who disagrees with you. And I've seen it, I've done it in, in shows where I've talked about my more liberal ideas with a very conservative audience and they've laughed. And I've just stood there going, why would you laugh if you didn't sort of know what I'm talking about, mm. you know? You said that you experienced it. Were there jokes by comedians that you feel like changed your perspective? I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was specific Got it. Uh, jokes. Um, yeah, I don't know if it was specific jokes. I will say when I started, I was so obsessed with David Cross, who did make sarcastic jokes where he was talking about, and also he grew up in the South, yeah. and he was talking about um, things that I understood because I also was from the South, and I also saw in him a person who doesn't seem to be the stereotype of, you know, well, here from the South, you should be dot, dot, dot. Yeah, which yeah. even people from the South aren't necessarily like that. But I saw in him a comic who was that way. Yeah. And I was like, I agree with his sarcasm. And I agree with that. I think he is supportive of everybody. And he's very yeah. open-minded. And I just, I think I'm attracted to that. Um, in the special, you say you hope to do the, to do this at Carnegie Hall one day. Um, and regardless of sort of the career ambition aspect of it, what is, what do you, what is this sort of, the sort of like ambition for both you as an artist and for comedy as an art form that what you're doing is a Carnegie Hall type thing. What is, what does that mean to you? I I think a little bit of it is the challenge. I think a little bit of is, is, Hey, here's the end of six nights. Let's say something that sets the bar so high that I, I maybe am like, well, yeah, let's maybe try to do it because I said that I would kind of like making a promise, uh, to your to yourself and also i think that uh, and there's there's this parallel this unintentional parallel that i love is when bob also talks about putting down the first stone of the thing that you can't see yeah uh yeah and it's truly unintentional i didn't know that he said that i didn't know anything he said in his interview until we started cutting it um and i think i was just naturally sort of uh sort of doing that but i think for me i i want to figure out the confidence of doing this because I don't want to just do it at Carnegie Hall. I, I will tell you, um, that's probably a horrible <laughs> space. <laughs> it's probably a horrible space to do it. It's probably way too big. And you probably want no more than 500 people in a, sure, yeah. in a more compact space to do this style for sure. Um, but I, I do think I, I, I want to know like, well, what is the thing that, you know, when we were kids, every now and then on TV, there would be someone who's gonna walk across a tightrope across the grand canyon and it was always live and i think we all watched it because we might see someone die <laughs> and and knowing that the stakes were someone's life made it this entertaining thing that honestly is not that actually entertaining uh, yeah, yeah. to watch and i think there's this little bit of me that's like well how could i do this on live television mm. where it's not necessarily a special and maybe it's only 
30 minutes with commercials or 45 minutes with commercials, but it is me telling people I am just walking across a tightrope and this is either going to be funny or I will openly crash and burn in front of uh, everybody. And I, yeah. I don't mean it in an evil Knievel way. To me, it just seems like a fun thing to try to do. Like how fun can this be and how high can the stakes um, be? And it wouldn't be like, I, I, and I say this because I think if I pulled it off, it wouldn't be a ta-da thing yeah. for me because I'd like to believe that I am capable of it before I even try uh, to do it. I think it'd just be me going there. I showed all of you on live TV what I believe I'm fully capable of of doing. And isn't that cool? <laughs> it wasn't this a so cool thing. It's it's the impulse that you're like you first you're like I showed you. You're like, "Oh, so there's like a certain amount of there are doubters." But it doesn't seem like you think people are sure. like you can't do that. It's just that it is right. it really just like, "Oh, wouldn't there be cool to be a cool thing that this happened?" Is it just simply like I want a cooler thing, cool things to happen? I I think I I it's just in the sense of saying, and this sort of takes us back to, you know, I, when I watch John Mulaney and I realize I won't do that because I don't do that. I think my brain goes, but what about this that I maybe can do? But what excites me is I'm not a hundred percent sure that I could pull off the thing I know yeah. that I can uh, do. And to me, it's like the tightrope walker. If someone would have fallen as a kid, and thank God we never saw that <laughs> on live TV, but even if that tightrope walker fell to their death, they would be falling knowing I didn't do it, but I do know that I can do it. Otherwise, yeah. I would have never <laughs> attempted to try. And that's their last thought before they <laughs> before they die. So, Or maybe I just want to bomb in front of everyone and go, see, stand-up's hard. <laughs> All right, so now it's time for our final segment. It's called The Laughing Round. It's like a lightning round, but because uh, this is a comedy podcast, we call it The Laughing Round. Um, thank you. It's not, <laughs> honestly, and I should preface this because I, I've now learned that enough people are like, oh, lightning means these answers are going to be fast. Mostly the questions are shorter. You can take as long as time as you need. Uh, okay, perfect. Because we all know I have a disease and I keep yes, talking. Yes. Do you have a favorite Joke, joke, like a street joke or a dad joke, a knock, knock joke, or just one you, you think know, of right now when I ask the question. Doesn't have to be a favorite. The one I think of is one my dad would say all the time, and it was, um, um, "What did the fish say when it swam into the wall?" Damn. <laughs> he loved it. He loved that joke so much. He would tell me. He would tell my brothers and sisters. He would tell people, and we were like, "That joke is so stupid," and yet I'm like, "What a great little thing to have in your back pocket." <laughs> it is stupid and, and i'll see people don't even laugh they go huh <laughs> yeah i think he would say huh, a fish would say, yeah a fish would that's say cute that. and you're a grown you're a grown adult who said that okay gotcha <laughs> but now i know you drink snapple <laughs> um is there a joke you wish you could steal um and not get caught like you you get to have this joke it's another dimension everything's exactly the same but this joke is yours and you could it's tell not it. i wish to god i could steal and have and be credited for Bo Burnham's last, the inside. I don't know if you've watched it. Yeah, I've, I've watched, watched it. it two times. I'm probably going to watch it five <laughs> total at some point. 
but I wish to God that whole thing. I wish I had that creativity. I wish I had that work <laughs> ethic. I wish I had that focus and that talent and that genius. I, and, and that comes to mind because I specifically have just watched it twice in less than 24 hours. I was just so blown away by it. And I, I love all of his stuff. But to me, that was like art. That was like high art of something that I just, I, 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 all of it. I was like, God, I wish I, I wish I did that. <laughs> yeah, I watched it. I've watched it three times. You're the first comedian I've talked to since it's come out. So it is exciting to know that comedian. Oh my God. I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm friends with him and I've told him and he, you know, he gave me my first role on a, on a TV show and I already have a ton of admiration for him and think he's just this genius of a person and what he's accomplished. But when I watched that, I was like, you son of a bitch, this is so fucking good. And you didn't just go, I'm going to make it good. You were like, no, I'm going to lay into it and make it perfect. So, yeah. It is like such a giant leap over like whatever the amount of effort in terms of production of a stand-up special. It is like not, it wouldn't be the same graph. It is like a completely astronomically different world. I, I totally agree. And I was also like, oh, your style, you can get so many other jokes in by making your specials like this. Yeah. As opposed to this live event, which is also fun. I mean, you can do both, but the jokes and the images and the genius and the creativity, you can show people I'm so much more than you even thought that I was if I'm just by myself. <laughs> and I, I just, ah, the jealousy of that. And I, like I said before, it's a good jealousy because I, I watch that and I go, we all got to step it up. We all got to yeah. step it up a little bit and get a little more creative. And it's a, and like I said, that's a good thing. Yeah. It's like, not like you want to do that. You want to do whatever your version of that is. Absolutely. And also to, to, for your brain to open up and go, oh, we can do more. We can mm -hmm. do differently. And and yes, exactly. Go, what, what is my version of, of this? And would I have fun making it, you know? Um, so it is almost exactly the 10 year anniversary of when you and John Doerr went on Conan. <laughs> oh my did. God, that's crazy. I know. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, oh, what nice timing. Um, yeah. Also, Conan is ending. Um, what a, tell me everything you remember from that set, which is, I feel like, of the most talked about late night sets of the last however many years, because people don't necessarily talk about late night sets that much. So yeah. What tell me everything as quickly as possible. Yeah, I remember being, I mean, first off, all that credit goes to John Doerr. I wish I could say I thought of this and helped him write this and helped him figure this thing out. But it is 100% John. I just happen to be lucky enough to be friends with him and have done stuff together on stage with him to where when he convinced, you know, JP Buck and, and all the producers at Conan and Conan himself to allow this on TV, I just happen to be right place, right time with the right friend who let me do it. Um, I will say to, for anyone who has seen it and is curious, we did not rehearse any element of it. We did not know what each other would say outside of the fact that I was going to get a member of the audience to do the, you know, sort of cheesy hands thing. Yeah. And he was going to play guitar. And all I knew was when he starts to play guitar, get that audience member. And when he smashes that guitar, get rid of that audience member. Those were the only cues because, you know, you, you do have to fall into that four to five minute yeah. uh, range. But I just remember being wildly nervous and we had done it enough times for me to know, do not listen to what John is saying. You can't, you, you will forget what to say and you'll just start 
honestly, you'll just start saying words that don't make any (laughs) sense. I was like, no matter what, forget him. Just when you hear the guitar, that's your only cue. And yeah, but it was so much fun. So surreal. And Conan's intro of it is what really made the whole thing really sell. Um, Do you have a a short story of an experience with a legendary comedian living or dead? Oh, great question. My story brain is the worst. Um, You know, I, I, I don't know that I have like a, a story story or something, you know, huge or amazing or big happened, but I do know my very first weekend of doing an official comedy club weekend as a host was with, 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 was with uh, Bobcat Goldthwait at the DC Improv. And there's something I loved about the fact that it was this, you know, legendary name from all these 80s movies who's this, who was a stand-up comic and here yes. he is doing his stand-up comedy and just talking and meeting with him and being at the club. I'll never forget, like I still do this because of that weekend that it was so, it was so fun and he was so nice and just such a real person that it was like, like, okay, you, you've got some people you can look up to that, you know, are doing it right. And you can try to emulate, you know, them. And and it's not like it's a story or anything, but I I'm one of those people that's lucky. I had a very early positive experience that really pushed me to go, you've made the right choice in this, you know, crapshoot of a thing. Mm. You can all fall apart and maybe it's nothing, but. Um, and, and last one, do you have a, a joke that, or a bit that you thought was so funny that you, you tried once or multiple times and you're like, still think it's funny, but the audience just never got behind it, but you will go to your grave being like, I am, was right. And they're wrong. I have a joke, uh, had a joke where I would do an impression of an old woman standing on her porch, looking for her dog. And then I would say, and the dog's name is spicy. And I would just yell out for this dog that the, the it's honestly not even i don't even know what it is but i am so certain that it is funny and i would do it in dc all the time and other comics were like it's so funny and sometimes people would laugh but overall people were like he needs to not do this as a job because if he thinks that's comedy he's clearly not good it's <laughs> clearly not good at what this thing is and I would just to their face be like, no, this is funny. And I truly don't actually know why, but I do know that it, that it is funny. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Rory. This, is, this has been great. Oh, thank you. This was so fun. It's so fun to talk about this stuff. I, I really appreciate the time. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Live Without Fear on YouTube.com slash Rory Scoble. Listen to Pen Pals wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Rory on social media at Rory Scoble. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shikishin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.